This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 33 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us, on the site. You'll find new podcast episodes along with a few articles from people across the fire service. So go check out the site, save it to your favorites, and if you want to write an article to be featured on the site, click Contribute at the top of the page. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating or review. Let us know how we're doing. Our guest today is the Fire Protection Force Development Manager at the Air Force Civil Engineer Center. In that role, he has oversight of Air Force Firefighter Development, which includes things such as career development courses, Silver Flag, and other development initiatives directed by the career field manager. One of those initiatives that landed in his lap shortly after taking the seat in 2020 was the company officer development. Within the past few months, he's worked closely with fire academy instructors and developed a proposal for a seven skill level fire officer strategy and tactics leadership course. Although the course is not yet official and there are many details to be worked out, he joins me today to share the rationale behind the idea along with what the course might look like. So without further ado, please welcome Senior Master Sergeant Jeffrey Wyatt. Well, I do appreciate you joining us. You know, I'm excited to talk about what's on the horizon, fire officer development of the Air Force. You know, fire officer is arguably the most important person in the firehouse. You know, their leadership and competency or lack thereof, you know, they're, they determine the success or failure of operations. You know, that said, it's great to see, you know, a concentrated effort in, on their development. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's, uh, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to talk about this, and it's definitely something that I've been um, – uh, cognizant about since even I became a crew chief uh, or I started taking on as a fire officer and uh, kind of what my development looked like and uh, the struggles I had and the things that I felt like should have been different as well as the, the good things that were out there. And so, uh, yeah, this will, be, this will be an interesting conversation. And it's, uh, it's been uh, pretty fun to take this on. Yeah, I think most of us probably had similar thoughts, you know, like, you know, what do I not know? You kind of learn trial by fire. And I read through the slides he provided me, and I think that's exactly word for word what was in there. That's probably where I'm getting that from. But uh, but before we get into the details of stuff, you know, can you briefly introduce yourself? Tell us where you work and what you do. So my name is, uh, I'm Senior Master Sergeant Jeff Wyatt. I work at FCAC. I'm the Force Development Manager which prior to being the force development manager, I really didn't know what the force development manager did or does. Um, I just thought FCAC, you sit in a cubicle and you don't talk to people. Um, and because of COVID, I haven't sat in my cubicle one time, which is very good. <clears throat> um, but basically as the, as the FDM, uh, what I've learned, I, t- I took it on in November of 2020. And what I've learned is, uh, is that basically um, you know, generally, if you want to go off my roles and responsibilities on the EPR, I have uh, oversight on the CFETP to make sure that uh, any issues that are out there within the career field get fixed, adjusted, taken feedback, um, host STRTs uh, with the schoolhouse to adjust the CFETP. Um, and then also I have oversight on the wartime uh, task standard or training standard. Um, I'm going to get some of these words wrong, some on the spot. Uh, which basically is what drives what we do at Silver Flag, what we teach. Um, and that can change pretty quickly. You know, we can adjust things, and it's pretty awesome to see how that adjusts based off of what the AOR says needs to happen, and we can teach those things at Silver Flag. And so I have oversight on that. Um, and also what has been the best part of this job is basically trying to interpret what it is that the career field needs into 
their development, hence the word that's in my, my duty title. And um, what I've discovered that a big part of that is, is uh, the initiatives that the career field manager is working on, I uh, basically hold on to his pocket, for lack of a better way to put it, and, and I attack him because, you know, I, I look at Chief Morris's schedule every once in a while when I'm trying to line up meetings, and he's a busy guy. You know, between him and the Air Force Fire Chief, they're killing it with all sorts of initiatives, uh, whether it be trying to take care of PFOS or dealing with other issues. Like, they are very busy people. And so having me in that position to be able to attack those other issues that are big priorities but take a lot of bandwidth is beneficial. And something that uh, was interesting to me for force development managers is, for example, I was at the schoolhouse working on this seven-level initiative, and the group training chief uh came in, the training group training chief came in and she was part of our discussions and she actually was more focused at the end on trying to understand what my role was and what it is that I do. And I tried to explain it to her and she's like, oh, so you're basically like a deputy CFM. I was like, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it kind of caught me off guard and I, I learned later on that, and I didn't know this, that uh, CEA FSCs are the only AFSCs that have force development managers. So every other career field in the Air Force either has to, you know, farm out some stuff to get done uh, by some folks in the career field, or it's completely up to the CFM to get stuff done. And so it's, um, it's advantageous to have this position. And what I've learned from being in this position in the last few months is that um, I firmly believe that with the exception of the Air Force Fire Chief and the career field manager, this position, you can have the most impact on the entire career field. And so uh, if folks are looking to have some, some influence and be able to create some change and some, some positive Thanks for their for their career field in the future. This is a position I definitely would recommend for them. Uh, it's it's been very it's been very interesting. So you know when you have that little green book of all the things you write down you don't like and things that you think need to be changed, all of a sudden, um, as long as you and the career field manager are in sync, you can you can do it. And so it's been it's been pretty interesting to do this. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome job, and uh, it's something that I wasn't familiar with. But uh, you know the way they explained it, it's pretty cut and dry. You know, force development uh, SKT. Um, the schoolhouse. And so the seven level school fits perfectly into your scope. Um, and, and when I, when I first saw this uh, initiative launched, you know, I just thought it was, I didn't necessarily think that it was or was not your wheelhouse, but it was an initiative that chief Morris had um, and uh, chief Wagner had gotten after and you just kind of took the baton and, and started running with it. But uh, I didn't necessarily realize this is just right up your alley and right up the alley of that position. Yeah, well, it, it is. And what, what drives this, and uh, I'm going to be putting out, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this a lot through this because I hope some, some folks pay attention to this is that what drives this uh, is the data that we get from our surveys. A lot of the stuff that I'm working on right now um, is, I'm able to work on it because we have the data to support the need, basically. You know, we can say that we need something all day long, but that's just touchy-feely if you don't have the data to prove that you need it. When Chief Morris goes up to the general and says, I need to do this, well, he's going to say, that's awesome. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced some things in your career field that you, you feel like you need to do that, but what validates that? If I'm going to palm a bunch of money and push a bunch of money towards something, what proof do you have to show that you need this? And so... What drives a lot what I, of what I do is the occupational analysis survey. And so the occupational analysis survey got pushed out in 2019. And uh, what we found was a lot of things where folks were talking about, uh, you know, I always say that we were basically become, part of homes have become a driver operator academy. You have a bunch of brand new airmen come out of tech school and immediately we give them a million dollar fire truck and tell them to drive. 
Uh, and so you have all these airmen, especially like say if, uh, if you were in PACAF for a while where we had a, like a pause and then all of a sudden you'd get like 10 or 15 brand new airmen at the same time. And here you are, you have to get them all upgraded. So you become more or less a driver operator academy as compared to a department that's focused on the improvement of their personnel through their craft, being in the fire service. Uh, but that gets deviated because now you got to get everybody qualified to be able to drive fire trucks. And so we found within the occupational analysis survey that uh, that was a big hindrance for the development of our fire officers at all levels from the time, you know, whether you're just getting in the front seat of a, of a engine company or if you're becoming a fire chief. Um, because we, we put so much emphasis on those lower levels and those other requirements. Additionally, through the occupational analysis survey, we found that uh, our upgrade requirements are heavily administrative and not necessarily aligned with what it is that we we need our folks to be doing. And that's really driven this. And so what I say to people, especially when I go brief Silver Flag, because I, I, you know, here at Tyndall, Silver Flag is just down the street, so I always kind of brief them on what the FKIC mission is and stuff, and what it is I'm working on. Uh, what I tell people is, you know, take those surveys. Because, for example, I'm sure you've seen this. When a survey comes out, what is the typical NCO or typical leader in the organization saying about that survey? You know, they're typically like, oh, I'm not going to take that. Or, hey, guys, right. take the survey if you want, whatever. And there's a very negative connotation about it. And so those leaders, those guys, those NCOs, and I'll just say like a tech sergeant, for example, you got a station captain. Hey, guys, I saw the survey coming out. I'm not taking it. It's a, it's a waste of time. They never change. They never do anything. And so his airmen hear that, and then his airmen aren't going to take it. And so then we're not right. going to get all the appropriate data that we need to make change. And the thing is, is that a lot of times they don't see the change because this stuff takes a long time. For example, the seven level school, this isn't just gonna get created in three months. I've been working on this since November and I highly likely will never ever see it because I'll be retired by the time we actually like are fully up and going. Right. Well, you, you hit on some things that uh, that I wanted to touch on later. I mean, particularly the data and the occupational analysis. And I uh, I kind of knew that was the answer. And uh, you know, so you already answered some questions that I got written down, but that's all right. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to uh, stifle the conversation at all. But uh, I do think that the best place to start the conversation on the seven level initiative specifically is uh, you know by discussing the origin of the idea. And I, I think you pretty much hit on that. Um, you, uh, you know, you gave me some insight into the evolution idea where it started. It started with occupational analysis. You know, this is something that we have identified with data that we need. Um, you know, can, can you explain anything else uh, for the listeners? You know, um, it, what what made us go after it? You know, what made you in November say, OK, let, let's get after the seven level school in, instead of or in lieu of this uh, this rookie. Or I'm not rookie, but the company officer book. Well, so. Um like I said, when I first took the job, I really didn't know what my job was. And here I am, it's COVID. I'm working out of my house, letting my dogs in and out of the door every five minutes, not able to get anything done. And uh, I just basically kind of had to try to figure some things out. And Chief Morris sent me the, the OAS, um, kind of with a, a, a funny remark, like, you know, have fun reading this, because it, it's pretty extensive. Uh, and there's a lot of data in there that you kind of got to train yourself to try to understand really what is even being said. Um, there's a bunch of way smarter people, statisticians that write that kind of stuff. And so it took a while to understand it. And, and I started digging through it and digging through it. And you could see that there were some, uh, it, it's driven off of our CFETP, basically the STS, uh, specialty training standard in the back of the CFETP, all those things that say you must do this to a certain competency level, a 2B. 
uh, meaning like you kind of like you can you know it pretty well, but you're not an expert at it. Or a three C, which is like you're damn near an expert. Um, and everything's broken down, and then they ask people certain questions to figure out if those competency levels, if they're actually doing them, basically, if they're if they if they feel like they've used it, have they not used it? How have they been trained on it? And that's kind of what the occupational analysis survey produces. And so, as we're digging through it, we're we're really looking, and we're we're finding that, or I'm finding that, we are placing a lot of emphasis in certain areas, administrative areas, uh, which are necessary to some extent. Um, but for certain positions, not for, say, your lower positions. And we are not focusing as much of our efforts on that, learning how to be that initial incident commander to, or that initial company officer, transfer command, and get inside into your job. And additionally, what really matters and what really provided us a lot of support were the hundreds of comments in the back. And a lot of those comments, and this is even prior to the OAS, uh, Chief Morris would hear this and I would hear it, but a lot of those comments are like, we need a seven-level school. We need a seven-level school. We need a seven-level school. It's in there multiple times. Uh, but the thing is, is what does that look like? Nobody really could answer that question. There's a lot of, you know, ideas, but nobody could really answer that question. And so what I basically was tasked with it was to figure out what the vision for a seven level school would look like and, and pitch it to Chief Morris and, and him and I, fortunately, we've been uh, perfectly aligned with everything and I've been able to bounce a lot of ideas off of him for what it should look like. Uh, so, you know, that answer of we need a seven level school, now we know what that seven level should look like and, and uh, what it is that we want to get out of it. Yeah, well, that's great background and that provides a lot of context. Um, so what I think is probably what in, listeners are probably most interested in is what the course is going to look like. Right. And, and again, you provided me that PowerPoint slide deck that, uh, man, that was, that was really great. And it went into a lot of detail and it, and it really clearly articulated kind of what it was going to look like, but I want to try to translate that here so that the listeners can understand. So, you know, without providing the finer details, I guess, uh, you know, so that, you know, you know, we don't go for hours here, but, uh, you know, what in general can a student expect for this course? Yeah. Um, actually, if you don't mind, can I backtrack a little bit? Cause I feel like I actually didn't answer your question from before for the company officer handbook. Is that all right? Yeah, go ahead. Answer it. Yeah. So, um, I didn't get in, that, in this position until November and we already had the occupational analysis and chief Morris just wanted to get stuff done. And he was able to tell, uh, you know, that we needed something. And we knew the rookie book worked. And so we put some folks together, start working on the company officer book. And it's, it's good. Uh, but the thing is, is that for something like that, we needed to go, we needed to go farther. And that's why the seven level school came about is, you know, the company officer handbook is, is good, but, you know, we're really putting that in the hands of departments that are already time constrained. Um, and there already is a developmental curve that exists or a developmental gap that exists for a lot of our departments across the enterprise. Is that the right answer? And, the company officer book is going to continue to exist, but it's going to transform as the seven level school comes around. And so to move on to your second question of what kind of the seven level school is going to look like, the the biggest thing is we want to be able to provide a school where when a graduate is done, a, an installation fire chief knows that they have like solid, a solid company officer, like they've graduated the school to X level. Uh, and an example that I use with people, and some people will get this, some people might cringe when they hear it, but this is kind of how I am, is think of like uh, the TV show Rescue Me. You got Tommy Gavin. Uh, Tommy Gavin, you know, take his personality issues and his alcoholism, that's all part of the character, put that to the side. 
but you have Tommy, Tommy Gavin, who is a solid fireman, solid firefighter on the back of the truck. Uh, now, granted, he's not a company officer, but I'm just using this as an example. <clears throat> Everybody trusts Tommy Gavin on scene. Tommy Gavin is the smartest firefighter on scene. Tommy Gavin is the dude that, like, he gets everything done. And so if you gauged him on a scale of 1 to 10, Tommy Gavin's a 10. And uh, most, but also if you look at, like, the experience, the training, uh, the skills that Tommy Gavin, this fictional character, has, he, he gets it all. It's all present there for him. Uh, so if you take, so, Air Force Fire Protection, with that example of Tommy Gavin's a 10, and then, you know, a zero is basically somebody who can't perform as a company officer, uh, I would assume, and I would just offer, and it's strictly my opinion, that most of our company officers range around a six, maybe a five. And that's just because of some departments. Lack of you know, experience. Just, yeah, some departments are not getting a lot of experience. Some departments may not uh, go beyond what is in the actual training requirements that FTEC puts out. Some departments do go beyond that, and they find out what the most technologically advanced and innovative training techniques are, and they do it. But it's different everywhere. You might have a solid seven, and to go back to that gauge of one to ten, crew chief at one department, but then he PCSs, and it turned out that he was a linchpin for mentoring all those airmen. And so what I want to be able to do is, back to the Tommy Gavin example of Tommy Gavin's a 10, and maybe the Air Force average for us is like a five, five and a half, maybe six, if we're lucky, and you have that occasional eight. When they graduate this school, everybody now, the, new, the, the bars moved, everybody graduates, and you know they're probably around a seven. And then you're going to start to have those guys that are a nine, and we may never have a Tommy Gavin, because that's just a you know, that's just like this, 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 this unicorn basically, but maybe we will. Right. Well, there's, uh, there's a lot that experience teaches too, you know, that, that, uh, so, absolutely. So that you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. Well, I would offer, um, that there are a lot of folks out there that have a lot of experience. Um, and perhaps they're at a department where they're not able to use that experience, whether it be they volunteered somewhere else or they, they had some experience prior, um, but uh, the thing is, you know, it, we can't get everybody the experience that a, uh, a Chicago firefighter or a Los Angeles or Denver or, you know, we can't get everybody that experience. Uh, but we can't what we can do for them is we or what we need to do for them is we need to create a system or a mechanism or a school, whatever you want, to, however you want to put it, where we give them as much education and training to validate their ability to go back to their home station and execute whatever their mission is. Uh, a good example that Chief Morris uses is that. Uh, you have your uh, a lot of a lot of folks are running jobs outside the gate. Uh, like say for example, when I was up at Ielson, we worked really hard to work on our mutual aid agreements to to the point where they're pretty much automatic aid agreements with our um, local departments outside the gate. And the awesome thing, it's, it's awesome for firefighters, but it's not good for the you know the folks in the community. But the awesome thing is you know it, it gets cold there, and so some people don't clean their furnaces. And so we were running a lot of jobs, a lot of structure fires out there. And so if you were a brand new airman, there's a good opportunity that you're going to probably have three working structure fires in a month. And that's not the same in every other department. But I use that as an example where there are other departments that are doing that same thing and people are running, people are running jobs. But the example that Chief Morris brings up occasionally is that a lot of times your fire chief might only have faith in one or two crew chiefs to go off base and lead those guys because they know it's going to be a higher risk environment. Right. Well, we need to change that to where if you go through this school, your fire chief's going to know that you're a competent company officer for an engine company, truck company, uh, for an ARF company. And he now has a, a baseline knowing, okay, this was the baseline that you were taught at. I have more faith and more trust in sending you off base to keep my folks safe. 
because I think that's something we've been missing where is our guys are not being trained to lead crews. Maybe it's not, maybe some departments they are, maybe some people are doing it just because they have that intrinsic like drive to lead their folks. But what we as an enterprise have not done is we've not created a mechanism to train our guys to lead crews, a company officer that can lead crews. An example that I, I bring up a lot of times is when folks do their officer one practicals, I always kind of bounce this off the guys at Silver Flag, try to understand it too, uh, the students, because um, you get a lot of people from different bases at once and it's kind of a good gauge. But I'll ask, you know, when you did your officer one practicals, were you a company officer that took initial commands, made a go, no go decision and went inside? Or were you the incident commander the entire time? And most of the time, you know, nine times out of 10, 99% of the time, they say they were the incident commander. Well, for a, a, a seasoned senior airman or a young staff sergeant, it's highly unlikely that they need, they need to be the, the incident commander for an entire emergency because they're right. going to have a battalion chief coming. They're going to have an assistant chief coming. The fire chief might come depending on the size of the incident. And so we've already trained, uh, we've taken away, we've changed their mindset to where they need to start thinking about training to be an, uh, an incident commander or an assistant chief as compared to you need to learn how to be an awesome company officer and lead your guys on the truck. And so with this school, the entire time, every objective is written to where can you lead a crew and coordinate attack with another company? Can you lead advanced hose line operations through a dormitory, not advance a hose, lead hose advancement, stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's an excellent, excellent way to explain it. I mean, it, it's a, not, not to take away from your, your slides, but that sounds, that sounds really good the way that you explained it and, uh, and, and being competent off base. And, you know, the, the people that we normally send are, yeah, those intrinsically motivated people. And now how can we bridge the gap between those who are maybe not so intrinsically, how do we make them competent, you know, and, and yeah, you did an excellent job explaining that. Now I'd like to get into the nitty gritty of the details, you know, how many, how many days would this be? Yeah, so, well, we're not quite sure yet. Um, we, so I went to, I, I had a solid team. It was really, I was really fortunate that the, the folks at Goodfellow um, were willing to give me a solid team. I think it was about 10 NCOs, some of their best instructors. Uh, and we went through and we, we looked at all these objectives of what it, what, what it is that we think those folks need to learn in order to lead their crews. Uh, and we had to kind of go through and figure out what the timeline is going to be. And um, just to give a little background, that was a, there's no process written in an AFI for creating an advanced course. If you're going to create an initial course, there's a process written in the AFI to where you get training managers, you get second air force involved, and it's a very structured process. There's not as structured of a process um, for writing an advanced course. Um, so we're going to do a training planning team in August to figure out the cost, the number of hours, the number of instructors, all that type of stuff. But what we did, because it's not written in AFI for what that process is, is we did a lot of work on the front end. And so I was very fortunate to have help from the schoolhouse where I went there for a week and we went through all the objectives. We went through how long we think it would take to teach this, what a dollar amounts would be. And so we got a lot of that raw data prepared now so that when we come together in August, we already know a good idea of what it's going to be in the conversations are really going to focus on making this a better product and a better school. Um, but uh, let me go over, let me kind of go over like what the school or what the actual like blocks would look like. And so, yeah, sure. Just in be, general. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, in yeah. stone, this is exactly what's happening. Just, you know, what's yeah, the general and, idea. And obviously this is everything I'm stating right now is, is the very beginning. Like I was telling chief Randolph in an email the other day, we're shooting for the moon. If we make it halfway, that's a success. 
And so um, the school itself right. would have four, the school itself would have four blocks. Uh, the first block would be our doctrine, basically all of our guiding documents. Because a, a problem we've seen, and, and, and this was really good on Chief Canup when he was a career field manager. Prior to Chief Canup being a career field manager back in the day, you had um, for your SKT, you would take you would take a test, you would take a test on like your officer one, officer two stuff. Well, we've already validated that they learned that stuff through their CDCs. So he started, but what he found was a lot of times these young guys weren't studying the AFIs earlier, weren't studying the AFMANs, weren't studying the TIGs, which is really what derives what they do on scene. And so we're taking that same concept. And, you know, if you have this seasoned staff sergeant that comes to the school, he's going to receive a two-day class on uh, 10-2-10, 32-2001, our AFMANs, our 91-201, our manning standard. Our manpower standard is huge for people to understand why do we have so many people in our department or not enough people in our department? Or why do you ha- get more people because you have a bombing range or you have somewhere else where you're sending folks? Uh, it's very important for them to understand that. So uh, it's also, say, like the 1710 TIG, the 403 TIG. They'll have two days of training, approximately two days of training on all of these uh, baseline documents, our foundational documents. And what that gives them is that provides them the why. If they understand the why, then they're more informed and they're able to make better decisions on scene, as well as they're ultimately better able to support the fire department, the installation fire chief. Because uh, I'm sure you've seen it. We've all seen it. You have a, a young, eager staff sergeant that he wants to take lead, take, do things. But then he gets frustrated because he doesn't, doesn't understand why this truck stage is right here or why this truck needs to be here at this X amount of time or why they don't have enough manpower uh, at the you know outline station or why they only have eight EMTs. Now they have sure. to answer that. It may not make them happy, but at least now they have the answer so they can better support. And that's the first block, which would be doctrine. Uh, the second block would be our ARF block, our aviation fire officer. Not quite sure what the name would be on it. <clears throat> um, back in the day, the rescue school was predominantly focused on aircraft rescue. And so if you graduated from the rescue school, the like you got put on the rescue truck, you were the rescue rangers, you were the guys who you did everything on the aircraft and the crash truck stood back uh, because you ended up getting a lot of experience and a lot of training at that school on all sorts of different types of aircraft. And like you were in depth, you were the rescue ranger. Uh, when we adopted NFPA standards, that went away and rescue school went towards the consensus standard and focused on rope rescue, confined space rescue and motor vehicle education. And so we lost a huge chunk of uh, valuable training and valuable education by transitioning to that curriculum within the rescue school and losing uh, basically ARF, uh, a a more, not ARF rescue firefighting, like, you know, the the baseline training we get in in tech school, but really getting our our rescue folks trained up for uh, aviation firefighting. And so we'll bring back uh, a ARF company officer course within this or more or less a a block, not a course, because the whole thing is a course, and really revector that importance of, you know, we're the Air Force. We should, we're the United States Air Force. We should be the best at aircraft firefighting. And I would offer that we're okay. We get the job done, but we can be a lot better. Um, right. So part of that, part of that course is going to be really focusing on um, understanding why certain components or certain things in aircraft do certain things. If you hit this switch, why are you hitting this switch? Uh, that 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 more advanced understanding helps you out. Um, or, for example, the first time you see an EPU activation should not be the first time you're on an F-16. 
uh, things like that. And so one of the things we really want to do, because we need the support of Second Air Force, and they're really pushing for modernization, really like high technology type things, is virtual reality. And uh, what I always talk to folks as far as the example is, I ask people is, uh, how many of you play Call of Duty? And a bunch of hands go up. And then I'll ask them, hey, when you, when you play Call of Duty, do you have the entire map memorized? You know, where this door swings this way. You got to shoot this guy this way. You got to jump through the room this way. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got all that stuff memorized. But then I'll ask them, like, okay, do you have everything memorized for all the aircraft in your department or the aircraft you might see in a deployed environment to the same extent or same level that you do with Call of Duty? And with the exception of one time, uh, and that's only because all they have is F-16s, uh, everybody says no. And so what we want to do is we want to try to create a virtual reality simulator where, and remember, this is leading crews. It's not just a dude going there, you know, a person going there doing it by themselves, is where there's two functions. You got, you got four headsets, so you have your, your ARF company or an engine company or a truck company, and the, the company officer, you know, he's in charge, but the first uh, setting we have is the training setting. And so if you can imagine an aircraft, and when I say these uh, aircraft, I mean, like, it looks 100% real. The, the contracting agency that does this for the Intel squadron at Goodfellow, they're the ones who run it, and they do it so that Intel students can identify uh, a Russian aircraft, a Chinese aircraft from underneath, from the side, from a thousand feet away. And so all the details are exactly real, and it, it's, pr it's pretty awesome to see. So, for, so imagine, you know, you're sitting there with your VR headset on, you have an S-16 right in front of you, you have your three crewmates, your three guys on the truck with you, and we can do a training session where you can turn the training mechanisms on and it'll show perhaps like a, a red or yellow cone from the intake. It'll show you where the pins are at, maybe a red X. It'll show you where all the pins go. Maybe those are also red Xs. It'll show you where the can canopy jettison is. Uh, and so you can walk up to it and you can like, okay, cool. I know where it's at. I can walk through, I can walk through, hey, you go grab the pins, you pin it here. I'm gonna focus on checking the EPU. I know how to walk this way. And if I go too close to the hazard, I'm gonna walk into the red. And it's very good training. Uh, it, it's basically got those little targets to where you can train to it. Open up the canopy, same thing. Everything's marked exactly what you need to do for the shutdown. You can press it, you can move it, um, you can ladder it, all that kind of stuff. You train, you lead your crew to do that. And then we, mo we go to the next mode where all the X's, all the hazards, none of that stuff is marked anymore. You have the aircraft running and now you have to go out and you have to actually, you have to lead your crew in doing the shutdown, the rescue, the painting, all that kind of stuff. We want them to be able to have the, the ability to practice that multiple times on multiple different types of airframes, not just airframes that are at their department. Pretty much the main airframes you're usually going to see, whether you know, uh, whether you're deployed or, or at home station. There's obviously some aircraft that are specific to certain locations that won't be at other ones. So we'll do all that, but they still have to get the hands on. And so we'll we'll try to secure some more aircraft, and they can practice and uh, get validated at leading crews on aircraft emergencies out there on the, the training pad at Goodfellow. Uh, to include something that we want to include in the, in the, the ARF portion is MOZ operations. Uh, MOZ operations are a big part of contingency training. Some departments have um, a barrier, some departments don't have a barrier. But the first time you see a barrier shouldn't be, because say for example, a lot of people don't go to Silver Flag even though there's a requirement to go. And the first time you see a barrier engagement should not be when there's an aircraft engaged on it. And uh, so, like I talked about, we want to change that foundational level of what our company officers are trained to. So we want to have a MOZ operation. We want, we want to have a MOZ set up there at the, the um, old air, airfield at Goodfellow. And we can, you know, carve an F-16 out there. And these guys are going to lead their crews in not only safing the aircraft, getting the pilot out, but also 
getting the uh, moz rewound. Um, that's the kind of stuff we're looking for for the ARF block because we really want to refocus on leading your crews. And some departments are doing this well. I, I, I'm going to be honest. Some are doing it well. Some are doing it to a, a different level. But the thing is, we need to make sure that as an enterprise, when we say that you're a company officer, you're trained to a higher level and we have validated your ability to do it. And it's not that this department's doing it well and this department's not, but then this one's doing it well, but then this guy PCS is and these people deploy. We need some more consistency with it. I'll take a pause since that's a lot right now. And if you got any other questions before I move on to the structural block and the uh, MVA. No, that's all excellent stuff in the virtual reality stuff. It's, you know, it's, it sounds like an excellent tool that we could hopefully down the road bring out beyond the academy, beyond a seven-level course, because that's, I mean, realistically speaking, I mean, let's be honest, it's the future of training, you know, and with environmental implications that associated with bringing out trucks and, and doing live fires and all these different things. And then, of course, the manpower constraints and time constraints and, you know, it, to, to be able to go through and then different phases of training and, and you know, where you basically crawl walk, run through this stuff and to be able to do it multiple times. I mean, that, that right there is, it sounds like an excellent tool. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see that come forward, but yeah, go ahead and, you know, explain what, what other stuff. you. Yeah. That, yeah. Hey, so, some, something else that we, we definitely looked at of this was, uh, you know, a lot of times folks are training in very controlled environments, daytime and the same aircraft or whatever it might be. And it doesn't change that much. Uh, these guys are going to get validated in their ability to lead crews during daytime operations, nighttime operations. We're going to make it uncomfortable for them. Um, and we want to make sure that it's not the first time they've shut down an aircraft was when now it's nighttime. Like they should have already done that at nighttime and we can, we can do that in this environment. And that pretty much kind of covers, there's a lot more that goes into the RF block. And I will say for people that are listening to this, I'm more than happy to, um, share like the list of objectives and stuff like that with people if they want to kind of have a, a little bit of a say in it or kind of, you know, understand what it is or get some feedback. I'm more than happy to share that with people and uh, kind of go from there. I'll just offer that. Um, so the next block would be our, our structural block. And there's a lot in here. And so what we really wanted to do was we wanted to create our objectives or this block to train company officers how to lead people, whether it be if you're on an engine company for suppression uh, if you're on a truck company for throwing ladders, venting, uh, or transitioning to search and rescue operations. And so, but we also want it to be interchangeable. Uh, this, let me also uh, caveat on this as well. This is for our motor vehicle and also for structural. It's leading your crews as a, as a company officer in coordinated operations with other company officers. Um, not just, you know, you're going to go in there with your four guys, you've met the objectives. Well, you go in there with your three or four guys or three or three or four folks, and then they go in there with their three or four folks. And if you are perhaps going to, you know, open this door, how does that impact suppression operations on the far end of the corner um, of the facility? Uh, so it's everything is all about leading your folks and having coordinated ops with other people. But for this uh, structure block, it's going to be pretty extensive. It's, it's, a, it's a couple weeks long. And some of the stuff that we plan on doing, honestly, it's not that innovative. It's just that it's the Air Force hasn't been doing it or some departments are doing it and some are not. But the fire service has been doing a lot of these things for, for 10 or 15 years. And because we um, are very focused on, uh, you know, our, and there's nothing there's I'm not saying there's, this is wrong, but we are very focused on our consensus standards, which are the minimum standard. Well, you have the minimum standard. That doesn't mean it meets everything that you need. 
And so a lot of this stuff is that extra stuff that, uh, you know, the fire service has seen that they need as well as the things that we know we need within the Air Force. And uh, so this is going to be on, you know, taking that initial command, doing your 360s, doing your real quick risk assessments, uh, reading smoke, understanding how to read smoke. Um, I took uh, reading smoke in college from the guy who actually wrote the, pro, uh, wrote the concept for it. It's amazing. Uh, some advanced fire behavior to really understand how um, how things change. It's, it's we need to go beyond your basic like, hey, you have some fuel, you have some oxygen kind of thing, uh, and ultimately making a go no go determination. Should you go into this into this facility? Should you go into this house? And, and I, I would offer, I would I would I would challenge it. A lot of times, people are probably pretty timid because they don't have that experience of oh, there's a fire there. I'm not going to go in. I'm going to go straight defensive. Uh, I've been that crew chief on scene with a fire chief where. I knew it was safe to go inside and he was, nope, we're not going in. We're not going in. And I'm not saying that I knew this because of all my extensive, extensive experience. I was just able to look at it and make objective, uh, make an objective analysis saying, okay, cool. There's a lot of survivable space here. Um, I'm reading the smoke right now. I know we're good to go. And I'll, I'll give an example of what it was. We went to a very large fire and the smoke was billowing out black and then it changed to white. And, you know, people were putting water on the fire. Cool, awesome. So it's changing. It's putting a lot of putting a lot of water into, uh, or steam into the into the smoke. Immediately, the thought was, oh, there must be some chemical on fire, uh, and it wasn't that type of fire. And so we just sat outside. That was the determination that that person made. Um, so we just sat there when we could have been a better aid to the operations that were going on. And so what we need to do is we need to we need to arm people with more knowledge so they can make really good decisions on scene. And that part of that comes with being able to read smoke and being able to read the building and read, uh, read the roof as uh, what's going on during the fire. Uh, additionally, we'll start doing, we'll do some uh, advanced forcible entry because a lot of times we're just breaking down doors with a sledgehammer and we need to learn how to open up doors when it's dark. We need to learn how to open up a door when we're laying on the ground and we have limited visibility. We need to learn how to do it by ourselves. We need to learn how to lead two folks and how to do it. Uh, we need to teach folks how to do hose advancements, not just from a triple load into a house. We, uh, one of the biggest things from one of our surveys we put out was that folks have struggled with Air Force type facilities. You know, your dormitories. Most of our facilities on a lot of bases are multiple levels. You know, um, some you know four levels, five levels. If you go to Osan, you have high rises, and it's it's difficult to get folks training a lot of times in how to advance your your two and a half inch hose, your three inch hose, or make a floating standpipe especially in our older facilities, and then advancing longer lines throughout a facility. It's not just grab the hose and go. I'm sure we've all seen it where couplings are getting caught up. We don't have a firefighter on a corner to advance to help the hose advance forward. We need to, we need to educate our folks and train our folks on how to better to advance those hoses through long lays. Uh, we're also going to be talking a lot about different types of ventilation strategies, whether it be you know, your um, positive pressure attack, or your vertical and your horizontal will go much farther, much more um, farther along in vertical and horizontal ventilation. A lot of stuff of getting up on top of that roof and can you read it? Where do you cut? How do you cut? Um, how do you make a determination? Should you be over the fire? Should you be on the side of the fire? Or should you uh, let some gas escape over here? Do you go through the gable? A lot of stuff that we're not really, we're just not teaching. Uh, and some people are getting that experience. Some people have it, but uh, for the most part, as an enterprise, we don't have that capability. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot that goes into it, whether it be firefighter survivability, search and rescue, air, airway, um, air management. Uh, and to be honest, even some a part that's really important here that's going to be included in the R block and the structure block 
uh, in motor vehicle is how to write proper reports. You know, what's that cradle cradle degree response? You know, you're doing your size up, but now you got to write that that report, and you shouldn't be learning how to do that as an AC. You need to give your input as that company officer, uh, how to decon people's gear, all the things that we've been learning over the last 10, 15 years. We're going to incorporate that in, or not, or things that we know we need to be doing. We're going to incorporate it all in to leading the folks and coordinated efforts for your engine company, your truck company, and uh, doing search operations within a, uh, structured facilities. It's a lot, I know. It's a whole bunch. As you're talking about it, I think about the, I think about the the details that that we would get better at as fire, you know, as fire officers, or just as firefighters, right? Like, you know, where, where you, where you put your flashlight, you know, how you hold the equipment, what kind of equipment you bring with you. Right. And, you know, the, the friction points on entering into a building and advancing hose upstairs and these different things, like you, you experience some, well, ideally you, you do it once a month or once a quarter with your structural exercise, right? Once a month with your structural exercise. And, but, realistically we know when the structural exercise comes you got guys on the crash truck that need to stay at station the station that's on the flight line right and everybody needs to get credit for the structural exercise what's logistically speaking what's the most effective way to do this you open the the warehouse door that's right next to the fire station that's one story and it's got some boxes in it right and you go you smoke it up you put a mannequin in there and you don't really challenge anybody right and and that's probably the majority of the time i'm not saying that people don't go get creative a lot you know i know that there are those people out there but this course i think would really expand our you know firefighter iq right and and at the most important level too because as you know like i said when we started out the the fire officer is the leader and their competency and leadership is arguably the most important thing in the firehouse because they're the they're the tactical leader they're the one getting the job done they're the one leading and telling people what to do and so and that those were the thoughts i had as you're speaking there yeah no you're you're absolutely right i mean it's you, you'll go out for that one training event per month or one once per quarter and you have so many people involved that you need to try to make it as expedited as possible um, and so what you do is you, you dumb it down or you make it easier. And the risk of that is, you know, we've, here's the thing, here's kind of how I put it. Like that's the new expectation. And so you created the new expectation is that you dumb it down or you train it down. And that's what the next training event will be. And the next training event will be, and folks will, that's how they learn. They're like, okay, well, this is how we've always done it. You know, we got crash crush. Crew, it just ends up being a checkbox, checkbox training. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and so in this environment, what I foresee with this is one, they're going to be killing it the entire time. They're going to be executing. It's not going to be, you know, dumbed down. But what I want out of this is these guys are going to learn so many different tactics for how to train their folks at home station, uh, how to be a better fire officer that this will transition and translate into how they go out and they do that for chief proficiency training. They're going to go find the impact of this. The impact of this is going to go well beyond uh, just the mm-hmm. 16 students per class or whatever it is, you know, 200, yeah. 200 300 per year. I wouldn't be, I, I would not be surprised in the slightest bit, say if this is fully successful and goes the, the way that I, I, I envision it 15 years from now, they might be like, Hey, you know what? We need to start cutting some things from the class because the types of crew chiefs, the types of company officers we have now that have been developed by the first initial students that went through these courses for the first couple of years, they're different people. They, they, their competency levels are much higher and we need to adjust now because we changed the entire culture of how we train mm-hmm. and what we focus on. Right. 
we just had our history series come out, you know, we're on part three, but I'm a history buff. And, uh, I think about this, everything seems to be cyclical, right? You say 15 years from now, we may not need it or we may not need components of it. And then we might end up wanting to take away because we have such quality firefighters, right? Well, this, this class existed right up until the nineties. Is that correct? Or, or yeah, a version so, of it? Yeah. So to, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the remaining blocks here in a second, but, it, but it did. Uh, and I didn't know that until I started kind of attacking this and trying to figure out. I was talking, I'm fortunate enough, it's kind of, this is an interesting place where I work. I got Chief Matlock, which was a pre- previous career field manager. He'd been in forever. I got uh, Chief Bridgeford, previous career field manager, and Chief Remedies, previous uh, career field manager. They're all here on Tyndall. And, and I really lean on them. And predominantly, I really lean on Chief Remedies a lot. Uh, he's a, I, he was my first deputy fire chief. I remember being a one-striper and seeing him get a bronze star and I'm like who's this guy who looks like Clark Kent looks like Superman and uh, I was fortunate enough to work with him numerous times throughout my career ultimately ended up being his deputy and so I lean on him for a lot of information for why we did certain things that we've done as well as with you know Chief Metlock also and so when I first started diving into this I learned that well the seven level school existed and I was looking through the curriculum for the old seven level school that uh, I forget the name of the instructor he's been there for a while as his name vanishes me but he gave me the old curriculum for the old seven level school and it was only about two weeks, but it touched on, uh, you know, not as in depth, but it touched on a lot of the stuff that, that we're talking about right now. And the folks who went to it that I've talked to, they're like, man, we loved it. It was absolutely great. We needed it. We were better crew chiefs because of it. And I kind of think about when I was coming up as an airman, the way that I was trained and how we focused on really perfecting and learning our craft. I was getting taught that by folks who went to this school. And then that school went away. Uh, when we um, when we adopted NFPA, so the National Technology Transfer Advancement Act came out and basically said, hey, federal agencies, look for different ways that you can, uh, I think it's like support technology or I forget exactly the, the details of it. I didn't read too much into it, but it, made, it told federal entities to start looking for um, mechanisms that they could adopt national standards instead of having their own thing within the DOD or within for federal agencies. And I might have that a little bit wrong. Chief Matlock knows it better than I do. But that's what drove our decision to adopt NFPA standards. And when we adopted NFPA standards, we found, okay, for what we have Fire Officer 1, Fire Officer 2, Fire Officer 3, and then here's the standard for Fire Officer 1. And we got to remember, these are consensus standards, the minimum standard, and they're written for the nation, not for the Air Force. Uh, so when we adopted those, we lost the seven-level school. And that was the, like the beginning of this developmental gap that I found, or uh, we found with the young, the occupational analysis survey for the development of our young airmen, our young company officers, our assistant chiefs, and our fire chiefs also. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny how this becomes cyclical to go to your point of, hey, we, we had it, we lost it, we realized we actually need it. And what will this look like 15 years from now? Will we adjust? How will it be? Yeah, hopefully we learn, you know, and hopefully it doesn't go away in 15 years from now. And with time, you know, we make mistakes and, you know, that's how we get better, right? This is a, it's just a process of uh, evolution, right? And it takes, you know, decades and centuries to, to really, so, you know, I think, you know, we're continuing to get better and, and I think this course is uh, definitely going to contribute to that. But uh, yeah, you said that you were going to finish up talking about some of the other components of the course. Yeah. So it actually, it actually drives it pretty well to say, you know, we lost the seven level course. Um, because we, we adopted, we, we, we are now meeting the requirements of NFPA standards. Uh, and so when we did that, we also adjusted the rescue course and the rescue course became, 
um, you know, rope rescue, uh, level one, level two, uh, confined space rescue, and motor vehicle extrication, level one. I don't think the level one, level two came until like 2009 or 2008 change. Um, but uh, so we adopted those. And we took away, what we did is we lost a lot of um, focus on aircraft firefighting. And we transitioned our focus to teaching rope rescue. And I taught rope rescue for years. I, I loved it. I taught at CTS over there in Germany. It was such a great experience. Um, but I would offer that there are some departments that need it. Um, but not all of them. And so, uh, but anyway, I'll just caveat on that. In 2010, um, when I was working at CTS, uh, the career field decided to remove motor vehicle extrication from the curriculum at rescue because a lot of folks were saying, hey, we, we are cutting cars. We're doing stuff at our local departments. We don't, we don't need this component. If we need to add some time frames in at, uh, for rope rescue or confined space, that's what we'll cut. Uh, as additionally, the Goodfellow folks at the time had mentioned that uh, they uh, they don't teach much beyond the firefighter two capacity anyways for motor vehicle extrication. So they weren't really doing anything that was too advanced. And uh, what I would offer, and a lot of my previous students would also um, attest to this, was what we were doing at CTS um, was awesome. Lack of, there's no other way to put it. It was awesome. We had uh, two beat up fire trucks, uh, two 10,000 gallon tankers, a couple deuce and a half, and we would have 12 cars and if we had a 12 student class, every student had their own car. We'd pile them up, up, up on top of each other. We would run them into guardrails. We'd run them into light posts. We would have four dummies in every single one. They would learn how to use different types of air cushions, medium air pressure, high air pressure, low pressure air cushions, different types of strut systems, your high, high tension buttress systems, whether it be Paratex or uh, 42s or whatever it was, different types. Um, I went to Goodfellow that time in 2010, and I talked to them about what we were teaching, what they were teaching, and it was, it was very different. It was extremely different. And so it makes total sense to me why the decision was made to remove motor vehicle extrication from the curriculum at that point in time. And so what we want to do is the same thing here. Remember, when we remove something, we lose that capability. Or we hope that it's being trained at the base to some capacity. And I'll, I have talked to some folks. Some bases are doing some great training. Um, but a lot of times, if we go back to your example for the structural exercise, how do you check that box? Okay, the vehicle's gonna be on all four tires, just pop the door, boom, training's done. Well, right, and both shifts need to see it, both shifts need to touch it. Exactly. It's only cut half the car, only bust one or two windows. Exactly, and so when you're trying to meet the, meet the needs of all, you end up downgrading what the actual true value is in that training. Absolutely. And, yep. and so we wanna bring that back. So motor vehicle education, we wanna bring back into the curriculum for this as well. And it would be about three days, and you would have, you would, there'd be a lot of focus on different types of tactics. Uh, it would also be, you'd be, obviously, from the very beginning, you're learning how to lead your crew on scene for motor vehicle education to do coordinated ops. I, I cannot caveat that enough that this is not just you're going to go somewhere and learn tactical operations. You are going there to learn how to execute those tactical operations within leading a crew, within coordinated ops of other company officers or other companies. Uh, we'll focus a lot on how vehicle anatomy has changed. Um, like I say, all of your, all of your, your electrical vehicles and stuff like that. Um, same thing with structural exercise, your initial considerations for taking command, your go, no go decisions, your, your immediate victim triage, uh, what hazards exist before you even get in there. And then we'll move on to some pretty awesome stabilization tactics. Uh, we'll have vehicles that are an over under, an under over. So imagine if you've got a, a small car that drives underneath the back of a Ford, uh, F450. Uh, that's a, a weird consideration because 
now the car is underneath of that F450, do you just start, a lot of people would say, hey, it's stabilized because it's good to go. But the thing is, is that the, the car has McPherson struts and the truck's pushing down on them. So if that truck moves much, the McPherson struts are also going to move with the vehicle. And so now that vehicle is not stable. So folks need to learn how to marry those vehicles together, whether it be it's an over-under configuration or a under-over configuration, and really take those things into account. And I would challenge that most departments aren't going that in-depth. But the thing is, no, when yeah, when, when somebody's sitting there with a broken sternum or neck injury, it matters that you compress those McPherson struts down and don't allow it to pop back up if the Ford truck rolls off or if you decide to push it off. Uh, so to learn, uh, you know, those types of things, how to stabilize on all fours, if it's upside down, if it's on its side, or if it's just in a weird configuration, like hanging off of a, I use the, I use the term like a bridge, but you could have something that's unstable in a ditch or over a guardrail or what I know a lot of people have seen that I've seen a lot, unfortunately, way too many times, the barriers of the front gate went up when they shouldn't have gone up and you got a car sitting there teeter tottering back and forth and a baby in the back crying. So they'll learn a lot of that stuff for stabilization uh, to include then your air cushions, your, your low pressure, medium pressure, your high pressure airbags, when to use them, when not to use them. Um, and I would challenge, you know, we've, since I've been in, we've relied heavily on high pressure airbags and I would just challenge that there's a lot, there's other tactics and other options out there. I want folks to see those other things. Medium and low pressure air cushions are awesome because of the surface area that they put on a vehicle is so much more stable compared to a high pressure airbag. A high pressure airbag, say it's a 24 inch uh, high pressure airbag, I don't remember the exact dimensions, but you may only have a contact point of five inches or four inches and it's wobbly on top of that. Your low pressure and your medium air pressure cushions, I'm not saying departments need to go out and buy them, but I want company officers to see that stuff and see how it works, you know? Um, to include that same for, argument could be made with a lot of different things, you know, because it could. So when I call, when I call for ventilation on a structural exercise, for example, how often do you see somebody roll out the PPV, the positive pressure fan, you know? Yeah, uh, no, you're right. And it's like, <laughs> well, hold on, a, hold on a second, you know, like, so what are you going to do with this? Is this, are we going to do a positive pressure attack? You know, have, have we talked uh -huh. about this? What kind of ventilation does it need? Does it even need ventilation? Right. So it's one of those checkbox yeah. One of those checkbox scenarios where it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're applying tactics that aren't necessary. And I think, you know, teaching our company officers that obviously you could bring that back to the station and apply it to training. Like, mm -hmm. Hey guys, let's not waste our time with this. Right. Like, uh, yeah. let's, let's, you know, let's implement the, the appropriate tool, the appropriate tactic. Yeah. It, it, it's awesome. Underwriters laboratories, um, fire research page. There is so much great stuff on there. And I would challenge that you're not going to find what's in there in a training manual right now. And it's not going to be in a training manual for a long time. And they have an entire course as well as an entire write-up and evaluation on positive pressure attack. It's awesome. Uh, it, it, will, it will change. I, I actually have it incorporated within the objectives for the structural block. It'll change people's perspectives in how they mm -hmm. ventilate a structure. I mean, is the, is the structure already self-ventilated? Will positive pressure help the fire right. or will it actually uh, impede your guys? Folks need yeah, to and the only reason I know about it is because I saw it in college. You know, I didn't see it anywhere else. You know, mm -hmm. I went and, and, and sought that information out, you know, and so. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, that's good. It's, uh, I was the same way, man. I, I did my undergrad in fire science through uh, Colorado State, and uh, I learned more from that program than I did any CDC or any certification that I've done in the Air Force. Uh, it goes was, into the depth it, that we don't go into with CDCs, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it was eye-opening. Well, like we talked about, man, it, it, the, our standards that we've adopted are the, are the minimum standards, and so that's why this course exists, because 
we got the minimum standard, but these are the things that we need to go beyond and, and get our folks to educated and trained on so that they can be better firefighters. Um, but anyways, to go on with the field education, um, we need to go beyond just popping the door. Uh, there are so many other tactics out there for whether, you know, there's, there are different names, you know, do a B post rip or whatever it might be. There's still a lot of folks that want to use chains on a, on a steering column. And the thing is steering columns now have U joints on them. So they're not going to, it's not going to work in the same fashion if you want to displace the dash and, and folks just need to know that they don't, you don't want to teach them a tactic and then be like, this is what you're always going to do. And they're going to adopt it forever. You need to teach them why they might do a, a certain tactic or how they need to adjust that tactic or other tactics that exist. And that's a lot of what this course is going to focus on. And it's, uh, it'll be really good. And that's kind of the gist of what the blocks are. So, you know, you have your doctrine, ARF, structural, and motor vehicle education. And I can't say this enough. These are guys, that, these are folks that are going to learn how to lead an engine, truck, ARF company, and coordinated ops with other engine, truck, or ARF companies. Uh, all under the under the guise or under the, the the command of an engine commander, obviously. So the 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 teachers or the instructors will be the incident commander. You know, you'll have a student take initial command, but then they're going to transfer it off because as we talked about, your 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 senior airman, your staff sergeant, most of the time is not going to be the consistent incident commander. They will be for a second or for maybe a minute or two, but then they're going inside or they're taking on a task that's been. Uh, uh, ordered by the by the incident commander. Um, let me see here. What else do you want to know? Yeah, it all it all sounds excellent. And um, as you, as you're talking, I'm wondering if you know they're going to allow senior NCOs to take this course because uh, <laughs> I think I think I'd like to get in on it. You know, this is stuff that uh, man you wish you had when you were a staff sergeant or tech sergeant, right? But uh, but yeah, it's all great. And and another thing that I thought of was, have you heard of the firefighter survival course that the the Air Force Reserve puts on at Grissom? And I have. Uh, they hold it, Georgia. Yeah, um, I'm, I've heard it's really hard. The, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's a lot of pride in that course, right? And it, Travis Bender and Chris Boykley, they went to the course, smoke divers, and um, they graduated. They got the patch, and they said, "Why don't we have this in uh, in the Air Force or in the Department of Defense?" And they went out and made it happen, you know. And and they were doing one course a year, and I think they're you know they're kind of upping it a little bit, and they're getting a little bit of attention. Um, I'm wondering what the likelihood of something like this, something like that course getting integrated with the seven local. Yeah. So, so I've, uh, I haven't reached out to them, but I have heard that the course is one very good and extremely difficult. Um, and I've, I've looked into some, uh, similar curriculum and stuff like that and that they, that they're going through. And I've, I've tried to incorporate that into the objectives for the, for the, for the fire officer course, mm -hmm. um, because yeah. firefighter survivability, it's huge. I mean, we've had, yeah. we've had, well, how to call a mayday, right? Yeah. How to call yeah. Mayday. You know, I, I put money, I would put money on it. I would put a paycheck on it that I could go to say 10 departments and talk to a lot of different young airmen or staff or, or you know, crew chiefs and the 10 different them. ways to call a mayday. Yeah. I, I bet I would not get, it would, it would rarely ever be consistent in how to do a mayday. At, at different departments. And, and, and they'd have to think about gonna, it for a minute, you know? Yeah. And I'm not going to, I'm not saying that this course is going to teach only the one way, even though other departments right. do it differently, but they need right. to understand that it, it's a big priority because when you mm -hmm. do need to call that mayday or when you do need to go in there and, and rescue that person, right. that's not the time to truly, that's not the time to think about it. Yeah, man, that'd be excellent. Yeah. If you could get that, if you could get that course in there. Um, and uh, yeah, I think they do it. In one of the RTSs, right? Yeah, yeah, regional trading site at Grissom and the one in Georgia. I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, is it Dobbins? 
Dotted Air Reserve area. Base. Yeah, north, but north uh, of Atlanta. Yeah. So, but what an excellent, excellent course that would be. And, and and this is kind of off topic a little bit, but think about I think about the impact that this might have on retention. Right. And, and it's not a problem in our career field. Retention is not a problem necessarily. Like we have the people that we need, but well, we have the numbers that we need, I should say. Yeah, no, you're right. But are the quality people sticking around? Right. Are we are, mm-hmm. so think about those places that you've been and you're like, man, that's a good dude. Why is he leaving? You know, or mm-hmm. we, we, we wish we could retain those people that are going out and doing other things because they're not, you know, necessarily being fulfilled with what they're doing. I think that a, something like this could maybe instill a little bit more pride and, and help with retention potentially. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if, if we go back to what we were talking about, you know, these, these folks will go to this course and they're going to be challenged. They're going to be very challenged. And hopefully what they do is they indoctrinate the things they're going to be learning. And now they're going to be, they're going to feel empowered to go back to their departments because they're going to, it's not just like one person learns something at FDIC and they try to teach it to 50 people. Um, and they, you know, come back and teach it to 50 people. They, all your staff sergeants would go to this course and now they have a new baseline and now they're going to be training all their 50 people to the same baseline and it'll change. It'll change how they train folks at their, at their home departments and ultimately will give them uh, more ownership and more pride in what it is that they're doing. So if you have somebody who's on the outskirts of whether or not they want to stay in or whether or get out and they think all I'm doing is writing MFRs and writing EPRs and doing all these administrative duties, this cultural change right here can can change that. It can it can adjust how they train folks, how they prioritize things, and give them a lot more pride in what they do. Um, a broad statement that I make uh, every once in a while, and uh, some people would disagree with this: uh, the system that we've created for um, creating fire officers within Air Force fire protection uh, is that we create uh, predominantly administrative. We've created a lot of administrative administrative systems. Put it that way, we've created sure. yeah. a lot of folks who learn administrative processes, and they just so happen to get on a fire truck every once in a while. Right, right. And that needs mm-hmm. to be adjusted. That needs yeah. to be adjusted. Like, and, and those those should, people that are good at those administrative things, they tend to succeed, right? I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, I don't want to throw myself in the category, but I will. I'm good administratively, you know. I'm good at those things. I'm, I, I like to read. I'm good behind a computer, and I like, I like to write. I like to do those things. And so, mm-hmm. I've, I, I've succeeded. I, don't, I like to think that that's not the only reason, right? But it certainly has helped in my success, right? And uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been as successful. I don't want to say that, but um, you know, but there are those people that you know could go a career without how do I say it? being held accountable, right? With their level of competency. Right. And, uh, this is, yeah, this is a good tool to, I don't want to say weed people out necessarily, but maybe help them with the things that they're not good at, um, you know, beyond the administrative stuff. You said it perfectly. Don't get me wrong. The administrative things that we do, a lot of it is necessary. Um, but so is being on the truck with your folks. So is not getting on your computer when you're, so is like when you're, when you're, when your crew is checking out the truck, you're not on your computer, you're out there doing it with them. Um, Instead of saying, Hey, I need to go check my email. You're going to go drive and you're going to go check. You're going to go grab hydrants. You're going to go do building familiarization. You're going to, there's no reason you need to stay in the station. Like Mm -hmm. to me, anytime I would see my folks just sitting around in the kitchen, sitting behind the computers, uh, it would just irritate me because I think about like, this goes back to, you know, the, the folks who were mentoring me, uh, a guy named Lamar Price um, and, and folks like that, we were not just sitting around the station. Uh, we were outside doing things to better our craft the entire time. 
And I noticed a distinct transition from that probably in the late 2000s of, uh, because you know, at that point in time, I'm becoming a mentor. And uh, I'm like, what happened to the what happened to the, the culture we're doing with this? And it came down to, well, you got to write this MFR, you got to do this, you got to do that. And, and we need to change that mentality um, to where folks, they, they show up and get out of the station. Go train with your go train with your folks. Do your yeah. stuff. Um, you know, you as the the company officer, you're going to dictate how great your crew is or how crappy your crew is. Okay. I, I uh, uh, you know, yeah. I uh, I talk about uh, every once in a while with some folks. I think it's, I don't know how you say his name, Jocko Wilnick. He uh, he wrote the um, Willink. Yeah. Willink, yeah, the um, uh, extreme leadership. But he's got a thing in there where he talks about he talks about bow companies and stuff like that, and how you know a different bow company. Uh, you know, it's up to the leader. I forget, I'm I'm screwing it up. But the yeah, example he used, yeah, yeah, you can take a, a, a low-performing bow company, you change the leader, and they can become high-performing. And I, mm-hmm. I would challenge a lot of people that you know you'll have a, a company officer that'll say, "Oh, I got this crap crew in the back. They're no, they're no good. They're no mm-hmm. good. Whatever it might be. They don't know how to get this hydrant. They don't know how to do that." That's your fault. Yeah, it is. And I, I would put money fault. on. A, I could, I could switch spots with that person and yes. make them, an, make them an awesome crew. Yeah. Yep. They're an extension of yeah. you. Exactly. Yeah. And hopefully this class will create more of that. Right. Man, we're getting into to the weeds and we're having an awesome conversation. And, uh, you know, gosh, I would love to, I feel like we could have an old episode on that, right? Like the culture and uh, the importance of leadership at the company officer level. I mean, gosh, there's nothing more important. And, and that's to go back to my point again in the beginning, like uh, to, to focus on the development of the company officer and, and, this specifically in the tactics and, and procedures and fireground stuff. I mean, that's just so valuable and it could really like the effects, like we've said a couple of times can go well beyond just the individual student, you know, um, it could extend into the firehouse and really across the enterprise and across decades, you know, and, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, th- we've been going for about an hour now. I mean, and there's a couple of questions, like maybe quick fire, a couple of questions that uh, yeah, go for it. That we could. Get. So, uh, instructors, you know, who's going to instruct the course? One thing that stuck with me that Gordon Graham said when I interviewed him was that don't. What did he say? He said, "Don't have someone who's never been in a shoot don't shoot scenario teach me about shoot don't shoot." Right, um, and and not to say that we don't have competent capable instructors, right? Guys that are, are quality and they've done the studies and maybe they haven't had the experience, but they've certainly put in the training hours. So who, yeah, on that note, who's going to be instructors of this? Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. I, uh, and let me, let me tell, like, let me preface it with a little bit of a story, you know, say rope rescue. Okay. We, we throw these guys into these folks into teaching rope rescue, which is a highly technical thing on the outside. You go outside the gate and if you have somebody teaching rope rescue, most of the time, those folks have got extensive experience in mountain rescue, industrial rescue. They have extensive experience. And our guys, our folks just don't. Uh, maybe they occasionally do. Um, I taught rope rescue, and I had a lot of experience uh, rock climbing as a teenager. So I had a lot of experience already creating anchors, already kind of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, just screwing around on ropes out in the middle of the forest. And um, it was interesting to me. Uh, you know, we're out here teaching all this stuff and teaching it. And then what I would do is the other instructors and I, we went out to some cliffs out at Longstool, outside of the gate at Longstool. And uh, I'd say, hey, guys, let's, let's start putting in the anchors. Let's start doing this stuff. And they wouldn't know how to do it. 
because they always had that guardrail to, to attach to. Mm-hmm. They always had whatever right. else it was attached to. They didn't, and it, it changed their mindset. So we would, we would stay out there and we would do high lines. We would, we would just repel off it and it, it changed that mindset. And I bring that up as an example because like experience does matter. And so having experience in dynamic environments where you don't always have the same anchor point is it matters. And so how do we, how do we pick those instructors? I think we need to be very, so I think, I, I don't control that process. I'll, I'll just caveat that first. I don't control that I know, process. I know it's a difficult question. I, yeah. I, I well, I'll get that, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I like to keep things interesting on the podcast. Yeah. You know, so, and, uh, and ask questions I think, that uh, I think people want answers to. Yeah. I, and so whoever is the career field manager and the FDM and the, and the chief of the schoolhouse when we create this course, this is one of those conversations where we need to make sure that it continues. Like you and I right now having this conversation, it's important for them to have it as uh, a data point when this finally does come to fruition, um, how do we select the right people for this? Uh, some people, some folks would say that we don't have the right folks in the Air Force for it. Uh, I, I don't yeah. agree with that. Um, no, uh, yeah, that's, I know, that's a pessimistic look, I think. It, 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 it absolutely is. There are folks, and it, there are folks who have extensive experience running jobs prior to joining the Air Force or through volunteering while they were, are in the Air Force, or they work at a base that runs a lot of jobs outside the gate. There's a lot of value in vicarious learning too, right? And yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, you know, I'm and so that in, exactly, and that so, and so I think that intrinsic motivation. And there's people. There's, I can think of, I can think of a lot just off the top of my head. Those intrinsically motivated individuals that would be good for this. Maybe they don't have the quite the experience necessary, but uh-huh. they, they're they've at least learned in, uh, vicariously through other people. So they would probably be a good fit too. Yeah, I, I think we need to be very selective. You know, um, I know that we have folks out there, uh, but perhaps at least for the first group or the first cadre of folks that are going to teach this, uh, there needs to be a very good selection process for it. I, I foresee this being the course that people are chopping at the bit to teach. Um, mm-hmm. This oh, is, yeah. you know, like this is the one you want to do, and it might motivate more of those folks who have that, you know, that um, higher level of experience to go to the schoolhouse and teach. Um, but as far as picking those folks, folks who they are, we need to be very selective and very deliberate, at least in who the first group of cadre are, because they're going to create right. that environment. They're going to, they're going to set right. the foundation for what it is. Cause I can only do so much with creating the objectives. Um, and you got to remember, you know, this is a, this is an AT, this is going to be an ATC course. So once it's in stone, it's going to be difficult mm-hmm. to change. Um, another, I know another question was, uh, that I've seen some folks bring up is why don't we, you know, can we bring in some some mentors or some other folks and stuff like that. And maybe that's an option, but who's going to pay for it? You know, are we going to pay, are we going to pay for some captain out of Omaha or San Antonio? That's not a good, that's not a good long-term plan. It's not, it it may be, maybe an initial consultant wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, but you still gotta, you still have to pay for that, you know, and Mm -hmm. that has to come And and when you're, that's difficult. Yeah. Right. Right. So so, long answer, but we gotta be selective. No, no, no. And, And you know, of course, this is in the infancy of development, right? At this point, it's an idea. And, and you guys have done an mm-hmm. excellent job of kind of developing that idea and really putting a lot of details in between the lines. But, you know, what the instructors are going to look like, um, you know, we don't know yet. But, you know, I think it's a question worth asking at least. Something to start thinking about, you know, because we definitely want the right people. And yep. something, again, to go back to the firefighter survival course that uh, Chris and Travis put together and, you know, taken from uh, smoke smoke divers that they participated in you have to be a graduate of smoke divers to be able to be an instructor 
you know, you have to be with, I think, I think they call them patchwares. Like, you know, there's this coveted patch that you get when you uh, graduate, you have to have the patch before you can instruct. I mean, I could see something like that. Uh, that'd be cool if we could figure out how to get these guys patches, man. You get to rock the patch right next to your badge, you know. Um, yeah. And those patches it, it, they I got mean, for the firefighter cool. survival course are cool, man. It's uh, no slack, you know, is what it says on there. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And that, goes, know, that goes to Colonel Hackworth. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-mm. Um. Anyways, go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was just going to add on, like, when you know, when, when people have graduated from this course, they want, you want there to be like that, you know, they, they push their chest out, they stand up tall. And, and people know there's a people know there's a, a certain level of confidence that, come, that comes with it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah. some folks, I, I guarantee there'll be some guys who go through this and they check the box and, and they don't change. But, but you sure. know what? I want I want to think that those guys will be those folks will be few and far between. Well, I th- I think that's what we'll end on there. Um, and I don't know if this is a good thing to end on, but what are the implications of failing? And yeah, you know, good this is going to be difficult. This could be difficult. And if somebody goes through the motions for this, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's going to be an easy course to get through if you want to go through the yeah. motions. Like, yeah, I was told to go through this. You know, somebody told me to. I don't really want to be here. You know, are there <laughs> going to be implications of failing it? Career implications? Are they going to be able to deploy, yeah. retain them? You know what I mean? I know well, that's I'll a complicated what, question again, but. Uh, from a personal standpoint, if I had a guy, if I had a folk, somebody working for me that just said, you know what, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be here. I would slowly try to motivate them to get out of the Air Force. But uh, anyway, to answer your to answer your question, I got to kind of back go back on it a little bit. There are going to be prerequisites for this. Um, it's going to be total force. We we want it to be guard, reserve, active duty, and eventually civilians. Because you know, Chief Morris puts it this way: you don't want to strengthen one leg and not strengthen the other. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a, that's a different that's a different thing we're going to have to attack and. Maybe eventually other services will come way down the road. I'll be like riding bikes in the mountains 10 years from now when that happens. But, but uh, you know, there's going to be some prerequisites for this. Right now, let me back, let me back up on this a little bit. EOD had the same problem in the, in the 2000s. They kept deploying six months on, six months off. People are getting killed. Uh, we, I, think, I don't think that's news to anybody. And they started looking at, you know, why, why are people getting killed? Well, obviously, there are some things they cannot control. But they looked at their upgrade requirements, and they found that their seven-level upgrade requirements were heavily administrative and not on team leading. And so what they did was they created the team leader course. And so now when you become a staff sergeant in EOD, you have this checklist of things you need to do at home station. The commander says you validated at doing those things. You're good to go. And then you go to the, seven, you go to the seven-level team leader course down at, I think it's Eglin, and they validate your ability to lead a team on, on a hung gun, uh, uh, an asset, all sorts of different types of things. And that has influenced how they lead downrange and in garrison. And so we're going to mimic that. And what we want to do is there's going to be some prerequisites. As of right now, the idea for those prerequisites are all of your ones and completion of the company officer handbook. The company officer handbook right now does not prepare you for this course. Once this course gets fully out, written out and the, the CFETP for the course, the STS, that specialty training standard, you know, do X at X competency, gets written out, the company officer handbook is then going to reflect everything that you need to do within that course. And so then the department is going to be required or that individual is going to be required to show his ability to do those things to a certain competency level, whether it's a 3C or a 2B, probably a lot of 3Cs. Um, and then the fire chief or the, you know, the assistant chief is going to walk them through it. Whoever's they're going to, they're going to go through and they're going to be like, okay, I can, I know what the EIS or I know, and I know what the is. 
Um, I know what a, a window door conversion is. I understand uh, how to read smoke, whatever it might be. Then the commander is going to sign off saying, yes, this person's good to go. They can go to seven level school. They go to seven level school and hopefully they pass. But here's the thing, because it's going to be codified within our CFETP, just like the company officer handbook is, it's now an upgrade requirement. And that commander signed off stating, you're good to go. You can go to the school. And if they fail that school, it's now up to the commander whether to retain them or to separate them, right. as it would be with any other CDC or any other advanced course that's an upgrade requirement. And so this is going to become a condition for employment, basically. If you, right. if you want yeah. to get upgraded to the seven level, you're going to have to have it. And that's why we've kind right. of aimed towards, towards a seasoned staff sergeant. You know, you get all your ones done, and then you're going to go through the company officer handbook, which is going to not completely mirror what this course is, but it's going to have a lot of those baseline topics that are going to prepare you in order to pass this course. And as we have more people that pass this course, they're going to become trainers, you know, at their home station right. to get other people yeah. ready to go by basically mentoring them through that company officer handbook. So the company yeah, officer I'm handbook you is going up. to change. Yeah. It's going to, yeah, yeah, the company officer handbook will transform completely from what it is today. Um, I could talk, I could talk for another hour about the company officer handbook yeah. and the things, yeah, things yeah. we need to adjust, but the company officer handbook will change to reflect the, um, fire officer, the seven level course to better prepare them for it. But the big, to go yeah. answer your question, it will be codified within the CFETP that this is a requirement for upgrade. And if you fail, it's on the commander to recommend retention mm. or separation. And that's why we want that commander to sign off because EOD had a big problem where they, uh, when they first kicked this course off, they had a lot of failures. And so people are like, Oh, I just go there and they try to fail me. They try to fail me. So they're like, all right, well, here's the, here's the, the objectives. You train them to X level at your home base. Your commander says you did it. And then when you fail, now we'll just have a conversation then. Yeah, and I think uh, to go back to your point earlier, this thing's going to feed into itself, right? Yeah. And so I, I have Staff Sergeant X with his company officer book, uh, you know, Tech Sergeant X who just got back from the seven level school. Like, hey, come over here. Let me show you some stuff. Okay. Yep. Let's, let's get these tasks signed off. You're going to be squared away when you show up at the seven yep. course. And so, you know, that could potentially, it, ideally, that could prevent a lot of failures, right? Yep. This will have long-term, I, I hope that when I'm Mr. Jeff Wyatt and doing everything I can to not even pay attention to anything DOD, I randomly talk to one of my buddies down the road and they're like, the long-term effects of this have been so incredibly positive and changed the entire culture and what we do in Air Force fire protection. Uh, if I hear that, I'm going to be incredibly happy. Like that will be yeah. a significant legacy um, and have a significant impact. And I, I think it has, I know that it has the ability to do that. Um, it's just things like this, like we're doing right now, we're getting the footing down, we're, we're out there, we're advocating, and I'm going to continue to advocate and push for this course. And I know that uh, the next career field manager, whoever comes on next is, uh, I've talked to Chief Morris about this, the people who have applied, they're on board with this. Like we're, we have to keep pushing this because this is what we owe our folks and this is what we need um, in order to, to basically become, all, just become better firefighters. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's an excellent place to end. I mean, I had a couple of questions about impacts on assignments, deployments, you know, impact on staffing. It's already hard to send people to Silver Flag. But you know what? I don't even want to get into the details, man, because I know that there's not a solid answer for it. And I know that we're going to figure it out, right? Yep. I, I, I know that we'll figure it out, man. Um, and uh, I think that there's going to be some challenges associated with, but it's such an important thing 
that we're going to figure out. We're going to cross those bridges. We're going to overcome those challenges, you know? So, sir, I really appreciate your time, you know, explaining this uh, seven level school company officer development initiative, man. It's awesome. I, uh, I look forward to seeing what else comes of it. And uh, hopefully, you know, maybe the next couple of years I could get you on again. We could talk about what, where we've gotten right. And, and, as we get closer and, and to solidifying some things and uh, there's supposed to be a beta test. The target is uh, April, 2023, correct? Mm-hmm. That's what we're pushing for, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. It's uh, we got to get money. You know, this is a, yeah, right, right. it's a long process. It's a long process. So yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Moving target and moving target. Mm-hmm. So don't, uh, yeah. Well again, yeah, I appreciate you, sir. So have a good one. Yeah. No, thanks for doing all this. It's uh, this is big what you're doing. It's uh it's when people gain knowledge from things like this, it helps them just like with the doctrine block, it helps them understand the why, uh, and, and having that background for yeah. things, whether it be for all sorts of things with conversations you're having with folks, it, uh, like you said, learning vicariously, it, it, it'll, it'll influence what they do within their departments and how they lead their people. So it's beneficial. So thanks for what you're doing. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FireDog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this regularly posted to our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the FireDog Podcast. And of course, on Instagram at the FireDog Podcast. That is the Fire, D-A-W-G Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and follow. Stay plugged into every new episode and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there in the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with guest Jeffrey Wyatt. Until next time, stay safe.